be thankful for a father in heaven who cares for his children. We should be thankful that he is God. For the Lord, he is God. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. This is God. This is God. He spoke and galaxies appeared. This is God who spoke and beasts of the field and birds of the air and fish of the sea came into existence, who could form man from the dust of the earth and with one rib could form an entire woman. He split the sea in two, causing them to stand like walls so the Israelites could walk through on dry land. This is God brought one city to its knees through the holler and scream of mortal beings, gave one man the ability and the strength to single-handedly slaughter a thousand men with nothing but a donkey's jawbone. This is a mighty God who cares for you. This is who we should be thankful to and thankful for. Hasn't it already been an incredible morning already? Man, what a privilege it is to be here. Uh, you guys might see when I'm preaching sometimes, I'm endlessly messing with my little clip-on microphone on my ear. Well, it finally happened. I finally snapped the little wire piece. So uh, uh, here we are using the handheld. Uh, so anyway, guys, if you have your Bibles, Psalm 95. Psalm 95. We are going to be a little bit briefer this morning because of everything we have going on in the service. Please try to contain your disappointment. Uh, but we are going to look at this psalm as we're continuing our sermon series, thinking about what it means for us to have this perspective of gratitude in our lives as followers of Jesus. So here is why Psalm 95 is so interesting to me. It almost reads like two different psalms that were smashed together. If you ever read Psalm 95. So the first half, verses one through the first half of verse seven, uh, it reads like your typical psalm, so to speak, like your typical psalm of praise. It's really uplifting. It's really encouraging. Uh, a lot of coffee cup material, in other words. Whereas the second half is very different. It turns all of the sudden into a very stern warning. And so I've entitled this sermon this morning, Worship and Warning. Because if we are going to be followers of Christ who live our lives with this perspective of gratitude, we need both. We need to understand what it looks like for us to worship the Lord with all of our hearts, as this psalm says. But also, we need to heed the warning of this psalm, not to harden our hearts and so forfeit the rest that God offers. So this morning, let's take a look together. It's Psalm 95. Let's start with the first half of the psalm and unpack this together. Let's start in verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for this psalm, Lord, that shows us what it looks like for us to worship you. And Father, I pray that this morning you would both encourage our hearts and draw us into worship, but Lord, that you would also remind us of the danger of hardening our hearts against you. 
And Lord, draw us closer to yourself this morning, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, the first thing we see in this psalm this morning, this first half that focuses on worship, verses one and two both show us the one that we worship and the way that we worship. So first of all, let's look at verse one. Let's talk about the one that we worship. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. You look at your Bibles, Lord should be in all caps. By the way, when you look in the Old Testament and Lord is in all caps, that means it's translating the Hebrew name Yahweh. This is the name that the Lord revealed to Moses from the burning bush when he said, I am who I am. This is his covenant name. This is the name that shows us that God is eternal, that he is sovereign, that he is self-sufficient, but that he's also the covenant keeping God, the God who is faithful to his promises. We worship the Lord. We worship Yahweh. But the second half of the verse says, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. That's a language that's used frequently in the Psalms, this metaphor of God as the rock. It shows us that God is stable. God is dependable. God is reliable. He is our rock. He is steady and constant in a world that is constantly changing and chaotic. He is the rock of our salvation. He is the rock who is mighty to save as the song goes. So that's the one that we worship. But this also shows us the way that we worship. Look at verse two. Let us come into his presence. How? With thanksgiving. Not just on thanksgiving, right? But with thanksgiving in our hearts. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. There's all that singing stuff again. We spent all last week talking about, right? But, but he's saying we come into his presence with thanksgiving in our hearts. We approach God with a perspective of gratitude because of who he is and what he's done for us. But we come into his presence with singing. And I love this. If you look at these verses, it says twice here that we should sing, right? Let us sing to the Lord and then with songs of praise. And it also says twice here, joyful noise. Make a joyful noise to him. This shows us a few things, church. First of all, that we, as we talked about last week, the way that we express our gratitude and worship to the Lord is with singing songs of praise. But he also uses that phrase, joyful noise. I love that. I love that. It's a joyful noise. First of all, it means it's joyful. It's happy. We're celebrating when we worship the Lord. And let me tell you guys, just singing with you all, my heart is always so stirred when I hear all of your voices when we're singing together. It's such a wonderful thing as we're addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs by lifting up our voices together. But it's also a joyful noise. In other words, it's loud. And that's okay. It's supposed to be. It's a joyful noise to the Lord. In fact, you know how the Psalms end? Psalm 150 might be the loudest chapter in the Bible. Listen to Psalm 150. It says, praise him with the trumpet sound. Praise him with the lute and harp. Praise him with the tambourine and the dance. Praise him with the strings and pipe. Praise him with the sounding cymbals. Praise him with the loud clashing cymbals. Hold on, what's the difference in a sounding cymbal and a loud crashing cymbal? Who knows? Uh, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He's thinking of every instrument he can think up, saying, praise him on that too. Praise him on that too. I think if David were here today, he'd be like, yeah, praise him on the drums. Praise him on the electric guitar. Praise him with your voices. The point is that we are celebrating. We are joyfully singing and making noise to the Lord. Some people go, I don't really, I don't really like to celebrate. That's not who I am. Okay, wait till your team gets to the Super Bowl. 
All right, I know that there's a lot of Washington fans in this area, so you don't know what that's like. But let me tell you, as a 49ers fan, you know what it's like, a team that goes to the Super Bowl from time to time. Um, when your team scores, you celebrate and you make a joyful noise. So if we can celebrate that, can't we celebrate our God? Guys, look at what he has done. Look at what he's doing in our midst just look at the baptisms that we have today, the baptisms that we had the privilege of celebrating. I looked around, there weren't a lot of dry eyes. Think about the families that are gonna be dedicating themselves today and the further baptisms that are to come. God is doing great things. We can celebrate him, amen? So that's the one that we worship and that's the way that we worship. But next, the psalmist is going to give us reasons that we worship. He's going to give us three reasons to worship. And the first is that God is our king. We worship God because he is our king. Look at verse three. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. So the word for shows us that he's about to give us reasons. He just told us, sing, make a joyful noise, all that stuff. And now he says, here's why you do that. First of all, because he is a great God and a great king. This speaks to God's sovereignty, that God is the king over all of creation. God controls, he governs, he rules over everything. The late R.C. Sproul, one of my favorite theologians, used to put it this way. There is not one maverick molecule in the universe. God rules over, governs over all things. And I love the way he puts it poetically in verse four. He said, in his hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are his also. So this is a literary device, a poetic device known as a merism. And a merism, you use two different opposite ends of the spectrum to express totality. So by saying the depths of the earth are in his hands and the heights of the mountains are in his hands, that means everything in between is too. It's a poetic way of saying that God rules over, reigns over, owns everything. Even in a broken, sin-cursed world, all things are still in the sovereign hand of God. Maybe you need to hear that this morning because maybe you feel like your life is out of control. <laughs> maybe you feel like this world is just going off the rails. You need to be reminded of the words of this hymn. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong oft seems so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. This is my father's world, church. God reigns so we can be glad. We worship God because he is the king who reigns over all things. But we also worship God because he is our creator. Verse five says, the sea is his. Why? For he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. That's another merism, by the way. You have both sea and dry land. So that means everything in between. God made it. His hands formed it. And then verse six says, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. God created all of the universe and he created you and I. And he tells us that because God is the creator, he is also the owner. Because God made you, because God made me, that means that God owns us. We belong to him. What does this show us, church? It shows us that everything that we have is a gift from God. We don't truly own anything. And I mean anything, even the breath in our lungs. You didn't make that. It's not your air. You stole it. It's God's air. 
But listen, everything that we have is from his grace. We don't deserve it, especially not us because we're sinners. But God made us. He sustains us moment by moment by his grace. And let me tell you guys, as we're in this sermon series on Thanksgiving, that is the foundation of gratitude, is understanding that absolutely everything we have is a gift from God. It's all a gift of his grace. It's all from his hand. We don't deserve it. So God is our king. God is our creator. Then verses six and seven, God is our shepherd. Verse seven, for he is our God. Isn't that awesome? He's not just this majestic king and this transcendent creator. He says, for he is our God. He belongs to us. He is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So we worship God because he's our king, because he's our creator, but lastly, because he is our shepherd. Because he is our shepherd and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Scripture often describes our relationship to God with this metaphor of sheep with a shepherd, right? What does Psalm 23 say? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? God is our shepherd, just as a shepherd tenderly cares for and guides and leads his sheep. So the Lord provides and cares for us. And I love this picture that we get in this Psalm of a God who is both transcendent and imminent. He is both holy and he is close. He is both, as we just sang, merciful and mighty. He is holy, 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 but he is also close. He is our shepherd. A healthy perspective of God takes into account both of these. That God is both the lion and the lamb, the father and the judge, merciful and mighty. And I love the picture that we get where we get both of these side by side in Isaiah chapter 40. It says, go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. You see God's power there, right? How he says, behold your God. His arm rules for him. He is sovereign. He is all powerful. He's getting ready to say that the whole universe is like a drop in a bucket compared to him. But notice what he says next, verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Do you see that the same God in whose hand are the depths of the earth and the height of the mountains and the seas and the dry lands carries you in his arms like a shepherd carries a baby lamb? Guys, this is our God. He is both merciful and mighty. He is both king and shepherd. But we know by looking at the rest of the story where this finds its ultimate expression, don't we? Because who is the other king shepherd in the Bible? Jesus, the one who is the all-powerful king of kings, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the one who will come riding and conquering to rule the nations with a rod of iron, also said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. Church, Jesus is our king, but he is also our shepherd who gave his life for us, who daily leads us and guides us. That's pretty awesome so far, right? So far, so good. I should just give you a few takeaways. Uh, we should take communion. We should go out singing and call it a day, right? I mean, that would be a pretty good way to end the sermon, right? 
Well, instead, David is about to give us a little bit of biblical whiplash, okay? So we are about to take a sharp right turn. This psalm has been extremely encouraging so far, but buckle up because we're about to go from celebration to stern warning, like mid-verse. You don't even start a new paragraph. Like mid-verse, middle of verse seven, it goes like this. I'm gonna start at the top of verse seven so you get the contrast here. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Phew. Like what? We go from, you know, we're your people, the ship people of your pasture and all this great encouraging stuff and carrying us in his arms like lambs to don't harden your hearts. I loathe them in my wrath. They will not enter my rest. That's just a sharp right turn. And we need to understand what's going on here and how this applies to our lives. Fundamentally, I think that he is transitioning from a song of praise also to a warning against hardening their hearts. There's two warnings here. The first warning is this, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Let's look together at verse seven. Interrupts this flow here with the word today. That means there's urgency here. Don't put this off. He's saying today, this moment, if you hear his voice, this communicates this urgency. If you hear God's voice today, the command is don't harden your heart. In scripture, a hard heart is a metaphor for a person who stubbornly refuses to submit to God. A heart that is stubborn, a heart that is rebellious, a heart that says, I will do things my way. I will not submit to God's will. I know what God's word says, and I will not do it. And he gives us a few historical examples here. He says, don't harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa at the wilderness. And so he's referring back to, from the books of Exodus through Numbers, the wilderness wanderings. So you guys know we're preaching through Exodus in the springtimes so far. And you remember, if you were here earlier in the spring, we preached through, we just got up to the point in Exodus 15 where they got through the Red Sea. And we're about to start uh, in February, actually, back in Exodus, this section of the book where it begins what we call the wilderness wanderings. And he gives two occasions here. First at Meribah. This is a reference to Exodus chapter 17. When Israel had just come out of Egypt, they've come through the Red Sea. They're on the way to Sinai and they don't have any water to drink. And instead of thinking, okay, well, this God who just did 10 plagues and just delivered us through this sea, surely he can give us some water, right? No, they start complaining and grumbling against God. Why did you bring us out here just to kill us? And of course, God provides for them. But then there's a second occasion all the way in Numbers chapter 20. So from the starting early in the wilderness wanderings to later in the wilderness wanderings at Meribah, when the exact same thing happens again. They didn't learn their lesson the first time. Same people doing it all over again. And just to get a taste of it, let me read a few verses from Numbers 20. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt? 
man, are you sensing some gratitude from them? These former slaves who were just redeemed, why did you bring us out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Did you already forget about the bricks? Did you already forget about them throwing your babies in the Nile River? All you're thinking about is pomegranates. They hardened their hearts and they put God to the test. Church, this is what's so fascinating to me. There's sin that we see over and over and over from Exodus through numbers is complaining, is grumbling. And we have a tendency, I have a tendency to treat that as if it's not a big deal. Like, yeah, there's other sins that are a big deal, like adultery, murder, stealing, lying. Those are a big deal. But complaining, ah, everybody does it. If you want to know how God feels about complaining, read Exodus through Numbers. And here's why. Because God had provided for them and delivered them over and over and over and over and over again. And they still don't trust him, but they hardened their hearts. And here's what's fascinating to me. These are the same people who were in Egypt when Pharaoh hardened his heart. Don't you remember we studied that last spring? The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. They're doing the same thing. They're hardening their heart against God. And what David is saying in this Psalm, based on the history of his people, don't be like them. Don't harden your hearts if you hear God's voice today. In church, let me tell you 2,000 years later, well, 3,000 from this psalm. If you hear God's voice today, don't put it off. Don't harden your heart. You know, St. Augustine, before his conversion, prayed this. He said, grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. Grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. Maybe you've heard people say the same thing. You know, I'll get right with God later, but first let me have my fun. I'll start coming back to church when I settle down and get older one day, but first let me have my fun. What the psalmist is saying is that today is the day of salvation because you are not promised tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation because if you put it off today, your heart might be too hard tomorrow. If you hear his voice today, don't put it off. Don't harden your heart. If you are here today, maybe you're visiting with us and we're so glad you're here. Maybe you're here today and you're visiting with us and you're not a Christian. You're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Let me share with you very briefly the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news that there is a holy, holy, holy God who made us in his image for the purpose of bringing him glory. But we have sinned against God. We have rebelled against him and we deserve God's wrath for that reason. But God loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world. Jesus is truly God and he is truly man in one person. He died, he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross in our place, bearing the penalty for our sins. He rose from the dead three days later. And now if we would turn from our sin, if we would trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ and receive him in our life, we are saved. We will have eternal life. And let me tell you, if you're here today, you just heard the voice of God through the gospel. You just heard the gospel, okay? Don't harden your heart. I'm pleading with you, don't harden your heart. But today is the day of salvation. Come to Christ. 
please, if that's you, we're going to have prayer team members up here at the end of the service who would love to talk with you and pray with you about how you can have a relationship with Jesus. But deal with this today because you're not promised tomorrow. And even if you are a believer, man, maybe there's a step of faith that the Lord has placed on your heart that he's been calling you to a step of obedience, whether that be to repent of a sin, to follow the Lord in baptism, to share the gospel with that friend or family member the Lord has placed on your heart, to get serious about the spiritual disciplines of Bible reading and prayer, to get engaged in service in the local church, whatever God is calling you to, if you hear his voice today, do not harden your heart. Obey God's voice today. But finally, this Psalm ends, and I'll be quick here, by showing us the consequences of not heeding God's warning. And it leads to the second warning, don't forfeit God's rest. Don't forfeit God's rest. Verse 11 says, therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You know, if we had time, uh, I would take you to Hebrews chapter three and four. In fact, why don't you jot that down if you're taking notes? Hebrews chapters three and four. In Hebrews three and four, it's fascinating. The author of Hebrews actually unpacks Psalm 95. He takes this section of Psalm 95 and he unpacks it and he applies it to the church. I don't have time to go to Hebrews three and four, but let me just summarize briefly the point. Just as this generation of Israelites hardened their hearts against God and rebelled against God, they forfeited their rest. And this rest for them would have been the promised land. It would have been Canaan. God did not allow them to enter the promised land because of their hard-hearted disobedience, but instead their kids got to go into the promised land with Joshua. In the same way, for us today, do not harden your hearts and rebel against God so that you will fail to enter into the heavenly rest, the heavenly promised land. That's the warning. The warning for the church is don't harden your heart in rebellion against God and miss out on God's eternal rest. Hebrews 4.11, he brings this discussion of Psalm 95 to a conclusion by saying this, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. In church, how do we do this? How do we receive God's rest? through the gospel. It's not complicated. Through the gospel, through Christ. We rest in Christ, the one who gives us rest. This is what he says. This is the invitation, Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, rest in Christ, come to Christ, stop striving, come to him and find rest today. But listen, if you're here and you are a believer, let me encourage you and exhort you today not to harden your heart, not to forfeit God's rest, but instead to rest in Jesus today and every day after. Rest in Jesus. First of all, this is spiritual Rest in Jesus spiritually by trusting that he will keep his promises to you. Rest in Jesus by surrendering control of your life and circumstances to him. We rest by saying, Jesus, you're in control. I'm not. I don't need to try to control my life with my own worrying and striving, but I can trust you. We trust Jesus and we rest in him by laying down our burdens at his feet. But man, as we're entering into the holiday season with Thanksgiving and Christmas around the corner, I think I'd be amiss not to mention here that we also need physical rest. 
let's not just spiritualize this. Let's, let's say physical rest. Guys, take a day off once a week. The Bible tells us to, right? Like, like if it's good enough for God and good enough for Chick-fil-A, like it's good enough for us. Seriously, there is nothing spiritual. There's nothing virtuous about working seven days a week and never resting. We need a physical rest. Get some sleep. Turn off your phone every once in a while. Read your Bible and pray to give your soul the rest it needs. I know I'm saying that as we're entering into a crazy time of year, but listen, find time for rest, both physical and spiritual in Christ. Amen? Well, here's how we're going to land the plane in this service today. At this time, we are going to take communion together as a church family. And let me say this before we pass out the plates. If you are a guest here visiting with us again, we are delighted that you're here. We're so happy that you're here. And we are so thankful that you chose to worship with us this morning. And we'd love for you to join us as we take communion if you are a follower of Jesus. But I do need to be very clear. We believe that the Bible teaches that communion is something that is for Christians, okay? It is for people who have made a profession of faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're here with us and you are a follower of Christ, we welcome you. If you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, listen, as I said, we'd love to talk with you and pray with you after the service. And maybe, Lord willing, you can take your first communion. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, the scripture says that to eat and drink this meal in an unworthy manner is to eat and drink judgment on yourself. We don't want that for you. Okay, so just if that's you, let the plate pass by. No one's looking. We love you. We'll talk to you afterwards. But with that, I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward. We're going to pass out the elements. And as they do, let me read you a passage of scripture here. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What I love about this passage is that twice here, twice in these verses, it says that Jesus gave thanks. When he had given thanks, he did this. Communion is a time for many things, church, but it is also a time for giving thanks. We give thanks to the Lord as we look back on the cross. We look back at what Jesus Christ accomplished on our behalf, that Jesus gave his life in our place on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. We give thanks for his body, which was given for us. We give thanks for his blood, which was shed for us. But we also give thanks as we look inward because now Jesus lives in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We give thanks for what Jesus is doing in our lives here and now. Use this time of communion to do some business with God, to reflect on your life, to confess any sin that is in your life. Maybe as you heard the message today, you were convicted of ways that you have been hard-hearted toward the Lord. Use communion as an opportunity to do business with God. And finally, let's give thanks as we look forward to the day when we will see Jesus face-to-face in the kingdom of God. So here's what we're gonna do, church. I'm gonna give you about two minutes. Let's pray, let's reflect, let's do business with God. Then I'll come back up. We're gonna take communion together and then we'll go out singing.